Going to introduce you now to our MVP today. It is Chris Bowers who now joins me on the line. Writer, broadcaster, tennis historian, political observer, and author of books by um, of Novak Djokovic, Roger Federer, Nick Clegg, and also a citizen of the world. A big honor to chat to him as well. But Chris, a warm welcome to the Touchline, and thank you so much for your time on the Saturday afternoon. Thank you, Romy. That's a very kind introduction. Good to have you. I mean, we're talking, obviously, of a rollout, vaccinations happening in the country. So far, just over a million people have been vaccinated. Um, Teachers now going to be vaccinated. From your part of the world, if you take a look at this pandemic, um, is it different to the way I'm observing it at the moment here at home? Um, I I think so. Um, You know, it is a global problem. We all face it. Um, I suppose as a journalist, what I would like to do is to ask more questions. And I know that not all public health authorities are happy with um, (laughs) the questions being asked. But for me, there are a number of questions that um, I think any reasonable person should ask. I'm not going to go into that now mm-hmm. because you've, invi- you've invited me to talk about um, uh, you know, my, my About you. Work. The spotlight well, is on you. Sorry? I said, I guess the spotlight is on you, but as a journalist, that's a well, natural yeah. inclination I mean, to look, want to ask questions. I'm a, I'm a great one for asking questions. Yeah, you know, for me, me too. a journalist is all about saying, okay, so you've said that. Who says? <laughs> yes. have, I got, have I got a good reason to believe it? Uh-huh, uh-huh. And, you know... Um, I think it's great that we've got vaccinations out. I have a few questions about whether everybody needs it. You know, mm. is there any prior immunity? Um, you know, with, with previous coronaviruses have had previous immunity. I don't know. I'm not a scientist. Mm. But as a journalist, I ask these questions. And I, my, my one common feature around the world, I was in Australia earlier this year for the Australian Open, and I observed how the Australians dealt with it. I was in uh, Paris uh, a couple of weeks ago. I spoke to... Um, Lello last week from the uh, French Open. Right. And, and, I, and I do think that, you know, one of the common features is that I think there are not enough questions being asked um, and that therefore if, if more questions were asked, we might tackle this slightly differently. Mm, but there, mm. are certain, there are certain absolutes that I think, um, you know, I, th- I think the, the social distancing has been necessary. Um, not so sure about masks, but I think that's been a good thing to do. Yeah. I think um, some of the lockdowns, I mean, there's certainly a correlation between lockdowns and reducing the um, the number of infections, is there? Sorry, there's, there's been a, the, the, the two have gone together. Has one caused the other? Mm. Those are questions that I think are in, that people are entitled to ask. Definitely, definitely. Have you needed a vaccination to go to Australia to go to Roland Garros um, in the work that you do? No, um, and I mean the the European Union has issued a. Um, what it calls a, a vaccine status mm-hmm. uh, certificate, and in order, to, sorry, not a vaccine, a COVID status certificate, um, and in fact, these were used at the French Open um, for the last five, uh, four days when they allowed lots of spectators in. Everybody had to prove one of three things. One, that they'd been vaccinated. Mm-hmm. Two, that they'd had a negative PCR test in the previous 72 hours. Mm-hmm. Or three, that they had had the um, COVID, uh, they had COVID nineteen as an illness. Okay, um, and and therefore all those were taken as signs that they would not be dangerous. Mm. And and for me, um, 
you know, yes, I've had to do lots of testing. I um, I had to take a test uh, the day after I got back from France. Uh, I took another test this morning. So I am I have been tested a lot to make sure that I am not dangerous. Mm. Um, but um, I think it's interesting, actually, that, um, that those three, that you have to have one of those three for your uh, COVID um, status certificate suggests that um, having had the illness or having had a test within the previous 72 hours are evidence that you are not dangerous. Oh, right. that, I find is, that I find is interesting because it means that there is not the requirement for vaccination. Uh-huh. Vaccination may be a good idea, but there is not the requirement of it. And, and what, what, one of the things that also worries me is that we've got to be careful we don't assume... Uh, we don't make the vaccines um, give us too much hope for things. The mm. vaccines will reduce hospitalizations. They will, when people are vaccinated, they if they get COVID, they will not get it as seriously. Correct. But, but doesn't mean that you will stop the transmission. And I think people assume that, oh, once you've got a certain number of people vaccinated, there won't be any COVID. Mm, no, mm, you mm. can still transmit it even with the vaccine, as all the scientists are saying. So, you know, we've got to, we've got to be careful what we hope for, and the vaccines will help the process, but they will not, they're not a silver bullet that will do everything. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. Completely correct. But how has the interaction been? Because landing in France, for example, uh, I mean, we're human beings at the end of the day. You know, our human interaction, it's about hugging, talking. Uh, if you can't hear someone, you always, you know, lean in a little closer. Has it yes. been very different uh, as you touch down in France as well as Australia, as opposed to previous years? Um, what is that human interaction like? You know, because these are events where the world uh, comes together sort of thing, you know, where everyone comes together from all different parts of the world. And this time around, I'm sure the experience Experiences that you've had versus your latest experience has been completely different. It has been different and very interesting. I am fortunate in that I have one child and she's 19 years old now. So in a way, um, I'm through that business of the, the, the generation I worry about is young children, because mm-hmm. in particular, from naught to 10, they really need that sense of touch. They need to know that, especially young children, if they're upset about something, they can run to somebody mm. and have a hug and make and it makes it feel better. And at the moment, the only people they can run and hug are, are people that are in their immediate family. Yeah. And I find that difficult. I found it, you know, just the absence of handshaking, I find unfortunate. I mean, I'm quite a tactile person myself. I will give even sort of um, modest friends a hug. Mm. Um, um, you know, they don't have to be... To, uh, very close friends for me for me to give them a hug, but even the handshake for me it's just that sign of touch. Or every now and again, you've been in a conversation with somebody, and you might want to just put a hand on a shoulder or an arm, yeah. nothing too sort of intimate, but just to sort of say I'm with you. Mm. And that has now gone. And you know, when I was at Roland Garros in um, for last year's delayed French Open, we were doing elbow bumps. This year, we were doing fist bumps. It felt better. <laughs> But um, I would, you know, for me, there's nothing like a good handshake. And yeah. I don't know, I don't know how true it is, because again, I repeat, I'm no scientist. But I've, I've heard some people say that actually, our overall immunity uh, is dependent on us having access to, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, other people's germs. It mustn't be unhealth, uh, unhealthy. Hand washing is obviously a very sensible thing to do. But just to be in regular contact with people through yeah. Yeah. hands touching yeah. is all part of the overall immunity. And if that is true, and again, I'm, I'm not claiming any scientific authority that I don't have. If, you know, that 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 is, it makes intuitive sense for me, yeah. and that's what I have missed 
um, as well as the fact that in in uh, France, um, wherever you are out of doors, you have to wear a mask. Mm. So people sitting in the stands at Roland Garros for the French Open had to wear masks. And they've announced this week the rules for Wimbledon, which begins a week on Monday. Mm-hmm. And the rule at Wimbledon is if you are seated, you can take your mask off. So in other words... But if you're standing, you can't? Correct, yes. So in other words, if you are sitting in your seat in a stadium or you're sitting in a seat in a restaurant... That's fine. You can take your mask off. But mm-hmm. if you are then want to move around, you want to go to the bathroom, if you want to move to, you know, stretch your legs or whatever, then you have to put your mask on. So in a way, I, I find that that is a slightly eased mm. process. And I find that, um, I mean, look, if you're going to be strictly logical about this, given that there are airborne particles, it's much safer to hug someone than it is to have a face-to-face conversation with them. Because yeah. if you're hugging them, you're looking past them. Correct. Um, whereas <laughs> if you're having a face-to-face conversation, you could actually, you know, um, bits of your saliva could travel through the air and be picked up by the other person. So yeah, it's a little strange. I think one has to be... What, my, my whole rule throughout this pandemic has been be careful, don't be neurotic. Mm, yeah, yeah. That's a good way to actually treat it. But did you feel very different? Did the feeling of what the work, the kind of work you were doing as a journalist, uh, let's say at Roland Garros, for example, did it feel different? Did it feel like you didn't have an audience? Did it feel like you were isolated? How different did it feel? Um, I mean, look, when I talk into a microphone, you probably got that same thing now because you and I are on different sides of the world, Romy. Mm. Um we don't see each other. So when you talk into a microphone, there could be two people listening or there could be two million people listening, and you don't actually know. So you actually treat your microphone. And, and I have a rule when I, when I broadcast that I never say, hello, everyone, or I never say, ladies and gentlemen, because as far as I'm concerned, every listener is an individual. Mm. Everyone hearing this, I'm talking to you now, Romy, but I'm aware that there will be you know, numerous other people listening to our conversation. And as far as I'm concerned, I'm talking to each one of those individually. So that part of my work was not different. What was different was when I wanted to sort of say, do a little, you know, a couple of features or prepare a match I was commentating on. Normally I would say, okay, I'm going to wander down to the player's lounge, see who I can find, just have a look around. Um, Oh, there's somebody. He'll know about the person that (laughs) who's not about to commentate i'll have a chat with him or her yeah um and um i couldn't do that because the players uh the players and coaches and the media were totally segregated and what that meant was that when i wanted to take a a view of an ex-player it had to be an ex-player who was working for the media and the ex-players working for the media were absolutely interviewed into the ground Mm. um because they were the only people you had access to who were access accessible by the media exactly Mm. that was the big difference for us oh man how painful i i I guess you know i i'm just in awe i mean problem Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) it's a first world problem i mean if that's (laughs) the worst thing that happens to me in life that's you know the the worst you know people have died and people have lost their work so i don't think of it as painful but i do think of it as an extra obstacle compared to what's normal (laughs) i guess painful in terms of i guess from a journalist uh journalist's view as to the story you could have turned out versus the story that you did have at the end of the day i want to really rack your brain in terms of naomi osaka didn't want 
all this media attention when it was that she said that she was no longer doing these press interviews based on having uh, issues with anxiety and finding it hard to face the media and so pulling out. I'm still on the fence and I've had many a conversation about it. But Chris, I'd love to, through your viewfinder, uh, see how it is that you feel about it. Um, Okay, my... Uh, we have to break it down into Naomi Osaka's own issues and the general principle behind it, because mm-hmm. my answer is very different. I'm deeply sympathetic to anybody who is suffering from mental health issues. Mm-hmm. It's one of the great advances in the last 20 years that we have become far more aware of mental health issues and that people who have problems can actually verbalize them and they're not instantly treated as um, some sort of uh, basket cases, that they are people who are just going through problems. So to that extent, I wish her all the very best, and I really hope that she um, gets all the help she needs. In terms of the business of, oh, I'm not going to do press conferences, I'm sorry, that does not wash, because there is a deal here. Mm. Um, I was explaining this last week to Lelo. The world number two, as she is, in tennis is no better or worse an athlete than the world number two in badminton or squash or I suspect table tennis as well or any other sport you might mention. But the difference is the world number two in tennis can get far, far, far more money, can get a much better deal. Their agents can get better deals because tennis has tremendous exposure. And tennis has exposure because of... um, the deal whereby players make themselves available to the media on a regular basis so that um, we can report not just on the match they've played but on their comments on that match. And therefore, the uh, mandatory press conference is all part of that. And what she cannot do, or no player can do, is say, oh, I'm going to enjoy all the fruits of this. I'm going to get my agent to do some really good deals. In fact, I'm even going to run one or two of my uh, own campaigns that Mm -hmm. she did incredibly successfully for Black Lives Matter at the U.S. Open last year. And then I'm going to say, oh, you know, I don't want to talk to the media because I find that a bit, um, uh, it's sort of, you know, I'm not handling it very well, so I'm just not going to do it. Mm. If she's having issues handling press conferences, fine. She can discuss that. She can seek help for it. But you can't pick and choose. You can't cherry pick the elements of the overall deal Mm -hmm. out of which she does very well. And what was interesting was that all the players who were asked their views, they were all terribly nice to her. They were all very sympathetic about what she might be going through because she's very popular. We we all love Naomi. Yeah, yeah. But no player actually came out and supported her. That most of the players said no. Doing a press conference after your match is part of the deal. Mm. And um, in many ways, what Naomi has done is reinforced the fact that the press conference is a standard part of the um, the, ten- the, the professional tennis players' loss if, if they're requested. There are plenty of lower-ranked players who never get requested. Yeah, but, yeah. And, and, and therefore, that's all part of it. And, and you know, it's business about exposure. I mean, you, you were kind enough to mention at the beginning that I have written Novak Djokovic's biography. I've written Roger Federer's biography. Now, you know, those have sold. They've sold reasonably well. Mm-hmm. It's given me an income. I don't become rich on, on books. <laughs> um, in a way, I think the Djokovic book is a better book than the Federer book, simply because I had better material to work with. But the Federer book has sold better because Federer is a 
bigger name. Yeah. He is, you know, he is a he, he, he's an idol, an icon, and he's a darling of the of the sporting world and beyond the sporting mm. world. Mm. And that's basically just the economics of the sporting marketplace. And you know, I do well out of that um, because Roger Federer is. Is, is very good, and I do reasonably well out of it because Djokovic is the world number one and, you know, um, certainly one of the three greatest players of all time and mm-hmm. possibly even the greatest. And, and therefore, one can't, you know, one can't just say, a tennis player can't just say, oh, I'm going to take all the money, but I'm not going to do the work towards it. Yeah. I'm not going to do my bit. But also, and Chris, that- don't you also think that it shifted the spotlight for me a little bit when she said, I'm not going to do the press conferences, and I was like, hmm. And then... It- it it flipped a little bit because then the eyes were on the media and I thought, are we such monsters? Are we so dreadful? Are the we question is good. The yeah. question is good, Romy. You're quite right to ask that. And I have been in press conference where I have been embarrassed by some of the questions asked by members of my own profession. Mm. So to that mm. extent you're right. And and that question must be asked. Um and in fact it behoves the media to understand that just because a youngster shows flair for hitting a bit of fluffy yellow rubber backwards and forwards across the net <laughs> doesn't and then and then pursues that and becomes one of the world's top players does not mean they have chosen to sit facing the world's journalists yeah. and have their every word hung off. We need to remember that that is not what they've chosen. No one actually says to a youngster, well, actually, you've got good forehand, good backhand, good serve, you move very well, but actually you're not going to be able to answer questions by the press very well, so no, don't, come, don't, don't mm, play tennis. Mm. You know, we, <laughs> that, that's an absurd scenario that I just painted. So, therefore, yes, you're quite right. We've got to be sensitive to the fact that these people do not choose yeah. to... Be, become media performers. Having said that, they are happy to take the, um, you know, the the, uh, the financial rewards from tennis's exposure, and therefore they are expected to make their contribution to it. Mm. I think one of the um, one of the one of the areas that, if we had all the time in the world, I would love to take this conversation further, perhaps with a, uh, you know, a qualified psychologist, is the difference between introvert and extrovert yes. people. Yeah. Because I think most top sports people are extrovert in their own way. They're not extrovert in the sense that they're all going to be the life and soul of the party mm-hmm, and, the, mm-hmm. and the, the practical joker, but they all have a belief in themselves. Every now and again, you get an introvert, somebody who whose belief is rock solid, but they don't actually show it openly. Yeah. And I think Naomi Osaka is different in that respect, in that she she is a genuinely introverted um, personality. And again, I have no psychological training, so I can't tell you whether I'm using the term introvert. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In have, you, have you interviewed her? Term. Have you spent some time with yes, her? Yes, I've spoken to her. Um, I mean, the person she reminds me of is, is Steffi Graf, actually, uh, because yeah. because Steffi was, was remarkable. Um, Steffi was introverted. She would come into press conferences. You, know, you, you probably remember on the tennis court, her hair was always tied back, mm-hmm. and uh, her shoulders were back, and she cut a very tall, confident figure. And then she'd come into a press conference. Her hair was loose. She le- put her head forward, so she was hiding Hide, under her hair. Yeah. Her hair was like sort of these two curtains that sort of protected her mm. from the world. And I interviewed her a couple of times for radio and television. And um, when she did radio and television interviews, the moment the camera was rolling or the tape was rolling, she would 
throw back her head and would suddenly go into interview mode. So she clearly learned yeah. a way of dealing with this situation that was not naturally comfortable for her. Mm. Whereas for Osaka, Osaka has yet to do that. Osaka has sort of, if you like, taken refuge in the fact that she's a bit quirky. And she said, look, I'm a bit weird, really. It's a lovely admission of about a year ago. <laughs> yes. But she's not weird. She's just somebody who has just tried to be herself mm. in an environment where introverted people don't normally thrive. And I think that is an element of the Osaka business that we perhaps have underestimated. Mm. Mm. Chris, you talk about this uh, fluffy yellow rubber that bounces, you know, from one end of the court <laughs> to the other. I love that. I love it. Why is it? I mean, take me back to the minute where, or the moment where the penny dropped and I guess, you know, it was game, set, match for you and tennis. Um. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm one of these people, if I can quote Rudyard Kipling's poem, uh, if, um, if, if you can dream and not make dreams your master, if you can think and not make thoughts your aim, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same. Mm-hmm. For me, um, never get too high or too low on anything. Doesn't mean you can't enjoy the moment. But how, how you can you not? scared of being... But How can you not be I, high? I mean, I dream because, of an Osaka interview, uh, a, a Roger Federer, a Rafael Nadal, a Novak Djokovic, a Nick Clegg, yet you've sat with them. And- just, because, Romy, they are people just like you and me. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that is what we forget. That is what, you know, yes, it's... It, it obviously gives me a buzz when Roger Federer yeah. says, "Come on, Chris, I'll give you, I'll give you that interview now. Let's, <laughs> you know, for the next five minutes, yeah, it's yours. I'm yours. Yeah, of of course that feels great. And of course, if I do a good interview, I come away. But you know, I can come away feeling bad after an interview with a big player, or feeling good after coming away an interview with a much lower ranked player. I did an interview earlier this year with Marcus Daniel. He's a New Zealand doubles player. If you follow the tennis circuit, you'll have seen his name, but it's mm-hmm. It doesn't turn in there. Now, here's a, a, a young man who is actually doing his utmost to try and get uh, tennis players and athletes from other sport to give a certain percentage of their uh, income to good causes and, in particular, effective spending on good causes. Wow. And I did, I did an interview with him, and I came away feel you know, it was only about 10 minutes, but I came away feeling so much richer as a person. Mm. And if I do an interview with, I mean, I've interviewed, yes, Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, Maria Sharapova. Now, you know, it's very easy to do an interview with Maria Sharapova. She's ultra professional, mm. but come away thinking, I didn't handle that very well. Mm. Um, and ultimately, it's not the person, it's the interview. And, and I, because of the people I was, you know, work with and interview and all the rest of it. Of course, I have friends who said, oh, my God, what's it like sort of um, sharing the same space as a Roger Federer, a Rafael Nadal, a Novak Djokovic, a Serena Williams? And I have to say to them, look, yes, I view them as colleagues. They are in the same industry as me. I don't go to the same parties as them. But if I want something, I expect them to give it. But at the end of the day, they are all people. They have the same human value as Mm -hmm. you do Mm -hmm. and as I do. And people will be... Uh, respectful of your job, Romy, and they'll sort of say, wow, Romy's, uh, you know, presenting on the radio. But at the end of the day, you are just one person, like I am one person, and we have our intrinsic human value. And that's what I always say to myself. And that's why, for me, the 
the, the, the buzz, the glow, comes from doing a good job, yeah. not by interviewing somebody that everybody knows, because actually the culture of fame is a very dangerous one. Mm, mm, well said, well said. Is this always the plan? Was this always the dream? Growing up, no. this is what you were going to do. <laughs> no, it, it's interesting. I mean, I... Um, as a um, as a school child, I sort of narrowed my potential careers down to two things: either journalism or acting. I did a lot of uh, amateur theatre when I was a, uh, a youngster, and I quite liked sort of, uh, uh, I suppose, um, doing acting or yeah. doing drama. Because you do know w- when therapy. you type in Chris Bowers on Google, the actor yeah. pops up first. Those are the actors. Yes, I know. I know. That's, 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 he, he's not the same as me. Like, in a way, it's a great form of therapy because you play something else. But actually, I felt that the best profession for me was journalism. And I, I, I worked for a local weekly newspaper in England, and I then worked for a local radio station, and I went to Switzerland and worked for the Swiss World Service, and I worked for the BBC in London, and then I worked for an environmental organization for two years. And then I found myself in my early 30s saying, okay, what do I want to do? Mm-hmm. And it was one of those sort of pre-midlife crises, <laughs> early early adulthood crises. <laughs> what do I want to do? And I threw myself the question, what is my dream job? And I thought, well, there's no way I can do my dream job, but ask the question, because that might lead me to doing something that would help. And I actually came up with the idea, my dream job would be going around the world reporting on tennis. Mm-hmm. And so my next question is, well, what's stopping me? And I spent three months thinking about it, and I had enough money in the bank that if I didn't earn anything for the first year, I wouldn't starve. And uh, I said, right, let's give this a go. And it's worked for me. And, you know, I've had the most wonderful experiences. I'm sure. I've seen parts of the world that I would never, never otherwise have seen. I've, you know... I've built up a link with South Africa. For 26 years, I was the um, tennis reporter for SAFM. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, been through various generations of South African tennis. For, you know, originally Amanda Kutzer and Wayne Ferreira. Mm-hmm. Um, then the sort of double specialist, Liesl Huber and um, Wesley Moody, when they won big titles. And then the, you know, Kevin Anderson getting to two singles finals. I, I went through that whole thing as a member of the South African media, even mm. though I'm not South African. Mm. And, and for me, these are all experiences that have contributed to it. But I got into it by just saying, what's my dream job? Now, I have kept other things. You know, you mentioned my Nick Clegg biography. I have a sideline in politics. I have a sideline in environmental stuff because at the end of the day, tennis is part of the entertainment industry. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, if the world's government's got together and abolished tennis for for any reason, I would be sad, but the world wouldn't stop turning. But climate change does threaten uh, well, it doesn't threaten the planet, but it threatens our civilization. Uh, politics is important to protect things like human rights and, uh, you know, basic, um, um, you know, uh, to establish a, a decent level of equality as far as, far as we're, we're able. So for me, um, tennis is wonderful. It's given me a very good living, but it's not everything. Mm-hmm. And I'm very conscious of the fact that I am 
a small part of the entertainment industry. Yeah, that is very wise. It's good thinking because as I look at the various things that you do, and I do a couple of things as well, and I can't connect the dots, you know. I'm not like, oh, one flows into the other. I can see, obviously, uh, tennis, the books, uh, broadcasting. Yes, and I connect those. But the other two don't really connect to make a picture. Um, And the interests are outside, like you said, of the entertainment industry. And I really like that. I like that viewpoint that, you know, yes, I love tennis, but... uh, it's not exactly the be-all and the end-all of, of who I am. Do you love tennis but, enough? Uh, yeah, go ahead. Well, no, I was going to say, but surely, ultimately, those links are the person that does it. Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, I don't know Cyril Ramaphosa enough to know what his private interests are. Mm-hmm. But, you know, um, you could say, well, what links politics and whatever his private interests are? Um, former British Prime Minister John Major was an avid cricket fan. Mm. Now, if I was mm. into politics and cricket, people might say, well, what's the link there? Well, maybe the link is just that I'm into both. Um, ultimately, uh, I think we, we see categorizations and we pigeonhole people yeah, yeah. more than we need to because uh, ultimately we're all... Uh, a mixture of all sorts of interests. Yeah, man. I like that. I really do. I want to talk about a fan's guide to tennis. Was it really (laughs) your love that you were trying to, I guess, inspire others or really just lay down the law as to what is tennis all about? Um, Essentially, that was my first book. And the biggest satisfaction for me from that came from the fact that growing up, my my parents were very big into reading and their bookshelves were full of stuff. And as a small child, I would wander past these uh, whole load of books and I would see all these names and the names of the authors. And I remember thinking as a small child, hmm, I wonder if one day I might look at a bookshelf and there's my name yes, on the yes, spine yes. of a book. And so my first book was terribly exciting. But, you know, there's a, my motivation for doing that was that I... Um, um, you can use all sorts of names to describe me. You can say writer, you can say broadcaster, you can say journalist. Ultimately, I'm a communicator. Mm -hmm. I'm somebody who's there to make someone's understanding of something a little easier. And I was very conscious of the fact that tennis is a simple game. As I said before, it's hitting a bit of fluffy yellow rubber back Mm -hmm. and forth across the net. But because people then get interested in it, because it's you know, it's it's very telegenic. You can watch it on television. You can get a sense of the whole arena um, on the television screen. Um, people get into it. And then suddenly they get into all sorts of things like ATP, WTA, ITF, Grand Slams, all this sort of acronyms and terminology and sort of um, into-out forehands. Yeah. And, and, and I just thought, right, okay, let's write a simple user's guide, which I imagined actually not on a bookshelf, but next to a television set, <laughs> so that anybody sitting watching a tennis match and the commentator says, uh, you know, oh, it's a beautiful stadium, this, oh, it's not in the League of Monte Carlo. They actually can go to the book and they can say, all right, Monte Carlo, let's have a look under stadium. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's great. Oh, wow, yes. That view from the Monte Carlo clubhouse. Wow, what an amazing view that is. Yeah. So, you know, it was that. It was trying to sort of fill in the blank. So um, the book of tennis, which was, I mean, it was, oh gosh, it was 2002 was Two, the first yes. edition, and we, yeah. we updated it once, I think, in 2003 or 2004. Um, so it's terribly dated now. But at the time, it actually made a real contribution, I think, to people understanding an awful lot of the background so that when you got commentators or journalists or you know, news reporters talking about something and using a bit of 
terminology that's not sort of jargon, but you know, it might leave people thinking, well, actually, what do they mean by that? Yeah. It, yeah. Uh, much of it is explained. You, know, you just think like the difference between a grass court, a clay court, an American clay court and a European clay court or South American clay court. Mm-hmm. Um, just things like that. Amazing, amazing. Simplified tennis in a book for you to better understand. Time is ticking, Chris. You and I can chat forever. But I want to ask you before I let you go, which is a or what is a memory that you hold dear? Like if you think of, and I'm sure there's many, but if you think of your career since you started to date, what would be the memory that stands out for you the most instantly as I talk to you now? Okay, the... the from a career perspective, the most um, inspiring moments for me have been the interviews I've done where I suddenly find myself transported to a different level of consciousness and awareness. And there are three interviews that stand out, all to do with tennis. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first was with Yvonne Goulagong. I was interviewing her for a BBC series called Grass Court Tales. And I'd asked for a five-minute interview just to talk about her experiences winning on grass at uh, the Australian Open and at Wimbledon. And actually, it got on to a whole different subject because she was she's of one of the Australian Aboriginal tribes. And we got on to, you know, discussing, well, what is the role of... Uh, you know, to what extent do, should we respect um, tribal heritage mm. in a modern-day society? And it became a conversation that was just wonderful. Uh, second interview was not dissimilar to that. It was with Billie Jean King. The first interview I ever did with Billie Jean King, mm-hmm. where we, again, got on to sort of um, human dignity and how, um, yes, yeah, she's known for having established... Um, the, the Women's Tennis Association and the the standing of women in tennis. And, and in many ways, um, tennis has been the predominant sport for women in terms of establishing women on a reasonably equal footing to men at professional level. And, and But she talked about it in terms of human dignity rather than um, just in terms of equality of the genders. And, and that took us to a different level. And the third one was an interview I did for the Djokovic book. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really hope that somebody makes a film of this one of these days because um, Djokovic um, was uh, a boy from a very modest family who... Um, he grew up in Belgrade, but his family had a pizzeria out in the mountains, uh, and they made their money out of the skiing season and the hiking season, mm-hmm. so winter and summer. And so a lot of that time he would spend out in the mountains. And one day he noticed this woman running a tennis course, and so he went up to her at the age of five and said, uh, can I join your uh, tennis class? And that was the start of Djokovic becoming a tennis player. And she realized very early that he had something special. And she was his coach from the age of five to 12. And uh, what I didn't know at the time is that she agreed for me to interview her. Um, I think she must have known she was dying. because She died of cancer 10 weeks later. Mm. So I got the last interview with her, but really the only in-depth Oh, English language what a goosebumpy moment. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I was with her for two and a half hours. The, the recording of that interview is about two hours, 12 minutes. And it was just a meeting of minds because, you see, she didn't just teach him to play tennis. She thought, right, I need to teach this boy to actually be able to interrelate to the world. And she taught him um, about sort of, you know, table etiquette. She taught him about, <laughs> she taught him philosophy. She taught him about the about poetry, about uh, composers, about 
uh, Nikola Tesla. We think of Tesla now just in association with an electric car, car. manufacturer. Mm. But he was the guy that did the AC, the alternating current in ACDC, the you know electrical currents. Um, but, you know, it, uh, so she talked uh, to Djokovic about that. And from a very early stage in that interview, she, she talked about, I, I played him Mahler, the Fifth Symphony. I said, what do you mean the Adagietto, the fourth movement? And she said, oh, you know it. And I said, oh, sure, I know it. And, and we had this meeting of minds then. Yeah. And from that moment on, it was just this most amazing conversation. Oh, so there, there are three conversations that I've had with people for my work, which have just taken me beyond hitting a mm. bit of fluffy yellow rubber backwards and forwards across <laughs> the net. And it's taken it into a dimension of human understanding that um, just enriched me as a person. Beautiful. And I guess that fluffy yellow rubber uh, connects you and I with a love for tennis. But I also think, Chris, that you've just basically outlined what it is your next project is going to do. For you wishing for a movie, I don't see any here yet. Um, and perhaps that is next on your to-do list. Yes, but one of the things that I've learned is, um, you know, a lot of people say, oh, God, I could commentate on tennis. Yeah, yeah. it's it's not the same thing. Oh, I could write about tennis. (laughs) You know, it's not quite as simple. And I do not want to make the mistake by saying, oh, I can (laughs) do a movie. (laughs) I can make a film about this young boy. I'm sure you can. Come on. (laughs) This this aging uh, TV producer turned TV coach, uh, turned tennis coach. You know, it would be a great film. But I am not qualified to make it. Chris, it's been a pleasure chatting to you. Thank you so much for making time on the Saturday afternoon for us. And enjoy Wimbledon. I'm sure we'll touch base with you uh, from time to time just to get an update and see what's happening on your end of thank the world. Thank you very much indeed, Romy. Thanks for your Thank you. Thank you very much. Chris Bowers there chatting to us. A good laugh. And I love his honesty, though, as well, you know, because so many times I make a to-do list, like I'm going to do this, this, this and this. And he's quite honest to say, look, let me step back, OK? Ghostwriting, being an author, yes. I commentate, yes. I do a lot of other things. But when it comes to the big screen and making blockbusters, perhaps that just isn't my forte. Chris Bowers there chatting to us, broadcaster, tennis historian, political observer, activist, author of Novak Djokovic, Roger Federer, Nick Legg. What an absolute pleasure chatting to a great right here on The Touchline. If it's a classic hit, yep, we play it on Radio 2000. 2000.